but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Good morning. Hope you like my t-shirt. Uh, it's uh, sign-up day for All Church Retreat, so I, don't, I normally wear a robe like Will, but I wanted to uh, promote our All Church Retreat. If you haven't signed up, uh, please do so after the service. Hope you had a wonderful spring break. Uh, I'm not sure if everyone got to have a spring break, uh, but we kind of took advantage of the fact that our kids were out of school. We went to, to uh, San Antonio, to where my wife is from, and we, we went to SeaWorld, where uh, you know they've got the uh, Shamu show, and I understand this is the last... Uh, the, generation of orcas they're going to have. They're not raising any new orcas, those big killer whales. And so we wanted to catch them before they all died away. So a lot of fun to to go there. But if you can remember before spring break, in fact, before March, we were going through the book of Luke. We, We began our journey through the book of Luke in Advent when we looked at the birth narratives that Luke beautifully provides for us, the story of the miraculous birth of Jesus, who was born of a virgin. Then starting in January, we began to look at, well, at the ministry of Jesus. And when we were asking, as the first century people did throughout that series, who is this man? Jesus in the first century, you know, he grew up in Nazareth and everyone knew him as Joseph's son, the carpenter. And so when Jesus stood up in the synagogue of Nazareth and he began to preach with authority, everyone wondered, who is this man? I thought this was Joseph's son. And of course, as we continue to study the early ministry of Jesus, he, he left Nazareth, went to Capernaum, and, and he did some remarkable miracles. You know, he cast a demon with the words of his mouth. He, he healed Peter's mother-in-law. I'm not sure Peter wanted that, but he did it. It was great. <laughs> and then he continued to do some amazing miracles. He, with the touch of his hand and the words of his mouth, he, he cleansed a leper. As Will pointed out a, a few weeks ago, you know, there was a man who was paralyzed on a mat, and they lowered their, their paralyzed pal to Jesus, and, and Jesus heals him, and he allows him to walk, and he, he offers forgiveness of sins. And all the while, people are wondering, who is this man? Who is this man who, who cleanses a leper, who offers forgiveness for sins, who calms a storm, who brings the dead back to life? Who is this man named Jesus? Jesus actually asks his disciples in the Gospel of Luke chapter 9. He asks his disciples, he says, who do people say that I am? And of course, they say, well, some say you're John the Baptist. Others say, well, you're Elijah. And then Jesus looks him right in the eyes and says, but who do you say that I am? There isn't a more important question that we need to answer than who is Jesus? Guided by the Spirit of God, Peter speaks up and says, you're the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus' name literally means uh, Yahweh saves or the Lord saves. Jesus is the Savior of the world. He is the Messiah. He is God's chosen one. He is God's one and only Son who's fully God and fully man. Jesus is the ultimate revelation to us of who God is and and who God's calling us to be. Because he's the ultimate revelation, we need to listen to Jesus. Over the next several weeks, we're going to do a sermon series looking at the parables that we find in the Gospel of Luke. Parables are are short stories that that Jesus would tell in order to communicate an idea or to teach a principle about the kingdom of God, about God. But the problem is Jesus would rarely actually explain the parable. He would tell the story, the parable, and then he'd move on, expecting us to figure out what it means, right? In fact, Jesus' disciples begin to wonder why he keeps doing this. And so they ask him in Matthew 13, they say, "Why, why do you keep speaking to the crowds in parables? And Jesus says this. 
And he answered them, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. But to them, the crowds, it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables. Because seeing they do not see and hearing they do not hear. Nor do they understand. If we have any hope of understanding what Jesus is trying to say through a parable, we're going to need to pray. We're going to pray that the Holy Spirit would give us eyes to see and and ears to hear and a heart that might be opened and transformed at the teachings of Jesus. So before I read three very familiar parables of Jesus that we find in Luke chapter 15, let's pray. God, we thank you so much that you inspired Luke to put pen to paper so that he might record these parables, these teachings of Jesus. But Lord, we know that unless you build the house, the workers labor in vain, that apart from you, we truly can do nothing. So God, in this time, as we read these stories, these familiar stories, give us ears to hear. By your Spirit, give us eyes to see and give us a heart that might be opened and transformed at these amazing parables. That we might hear clearly what you want us to hear so that we might be forever changed. In the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts, be acceptable in your holy sight. Through your son's precious name we pray and all God's people said, amen. Amen. Luke chapter 15, beginning at verse 1. Listen to the word of the Lord. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. I need to pause there just for a moment. As we all know, Jesus was a man of great grace and forgiveness. Remember, Jesus, earlier we talked about how Jesus actually invited a tax collector named Matthew to to join his his circle of of 12 disciples. and that was unheard of because tax collectors were, were known, at, well, they were viewed as traitors because they worked for the occupying Roman government. And they were known as extortionists because they charged more than the Roman government required. And they made themselves rich off the taxes of other people. In fact, their testimonies, they were so known to be so deceptive that their testimony was not allowed in a Jewish court. They had been kicked out of the synagogue because of their sinful business. Yet Jesus of all people, invites Matthew, a tax collector, to join his leadership team. And if you remember, we talked about the fact that when he invites Matthew, Matthew has a party for Jesus. Matthew immediately puts his resources to work for the kingdom of God, and he has a party, and he invites his friends. The only friends Matthew's got are other tax collectors, right? So the tax collectors show up, and other sinful people show up, and Jesus is at the party, and the Pharisees stand in judgment of Jesus, and they say, why are you eating with tax collectors? What are you doing? Jesus continues to do that. He continues to welcome tax collectors and and known sinners. And the Pharisees just can't understand this. After all, in, in Psalm 1, the very first psalm we read, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. At its root, the Hebrew word for Pharisee means separate, to be separate. Pharisees, as strict uh, followers of God's law, prided themselves in being separate from the sinful Gentiles that were in ancient Palestine. To hang out and dine with sinners 
could corrupt their good character. So Pharisees would never welcome a sinner to their table. After all, in ancient times, table fellowship, when you invited someone to your table, meant that you were accepting them and receiving them to be a part of your community. It was too public a display of of affection. The Pharisees would never do that because they thought, well, now I'll be associated with these sinners and I'm separate from the sinners. I'm holy, set apart by God. Is a Pharisee who's known for holy separation would never welcome a tax collector to his table. And knowing the self-righteous judgment that was in the heart of these Pharisees, Jesus tells three parables that we're all very familiar with. Please listen to the first two parables that Jesus tells. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. I'll pause there. Have you ever lost anything before? Anybody ever lose anything? Yes, I'm so grateful for Dish Network. They now have this uh, thing on the cable box. It's called Remote Locator. I hit that button and my remote will, will beep wherever it is. Or if I lose a set of keys, you know, what we lose and how passionate we are to find that thing is completely directly related to how passionate we are about that thing and, and how much we need it. So if I lose a set of keys, well, if I have an extra set of keys, I'm not going to worry about the one set of keys that I've lost. But if I were to lose my, say, passport in a foreign country, I would get very anxious and I would look through my hotel room to find that which I had lost. Well, Jesus begins by telling the story of a shepherd who has a hundred sheep and and one sheep wanders away. And and well, that's not so bad because you've still got 99. And yet this shepherd loves that one sheep so much that he leaves the 99 to go find that one lost sheep. And then Jesus tells another story where it gets even smaller. There's a woman who's very poor. She only has 10 coins and she loses one of those 10 coins. And so in desperation, the woman digs up everything in her house to find, she lights the lamp to find that one lost coin because when you only have 10, one coin represents 10% of what you have. And so there's great rejoicing when both the shepherd and the woman find that which was lost. Have you ever lost anything before and found it? Have you ever lost a child? You don't have to raise your hand on that. I won't report you. But uh, about a year ago, my wife and I and our kids, we all decided to go skiing in Santa Fe, New Mexico. If you remember, right after Christmas, there was this blizzard that blew through town and I-40 was shut down for a while. We're literally, an hour after I-40 opened up, we we realized it. We got on the road. We headed to Santa Fe because we wanted to to ski on the fresh snow in Santa Fe, right? Well, we got our skis and our our equipment and everything and ready to go skiing. But John, our youngest, who was five at the time, said, I want some hot cocoa before I get back out in the cold. And, and Sarah, in her grace, was like, okay, I'll buy you some cocoa, John. I'll have some cocoa with you before we go out in the snow. And so she buys the cocoa, and she gives it to John. And as she's paying for the cocoa, John sees a table, and he wanders off to a table. And, and then my five-foot, two-inch wife looks around for her four-foot son, John, and she can't find him. 
Well, she doesn't get too nervous right away. She starts to look around and thinks, well, I'll find him in this lodge somewhere. And she's looking from one table to the next, and she just can't see him. After about 15 minutes of searching, she begins to become pretty desperate, pretty worried, pretty concerned. And our our minds begin to race to the worst-case scenario. Someone has kidnapped our son, John. So we start yelling in the lodge, John, John, John. And he can't hear us for whatever reason. And finally, we find John, and there he is sipping his hot cocoa. He didn't know he was lost. He was just enjoying his cocoa. We were so grateful to find our lost son because we love him so much. You don't want to lose the child that you love. Where do our passions lie today? I'm sure we're all passionate about our friends and our family members. We care a great deal for them. If one of them is hurt, we'll do all that we can to to help them. I'm sure we're all generous to the people we care about. But are we generous to the people that in our neighborhood or in our community, or in our country, or in our world that we don't yet know. When we're in a crowd of people, how do we view the people around us? Do we view them as people, as the scriptures say, who have been fearfully and wonderfully made in the very image of God? Or do we view them as people who are simply in our way? Last May, my wife and I celebrated our 15th wedding anniversary, and so we went to Niagara Falls to celebrate. We've been on our bucket list for a long time, and we were so excited to see Niagara Falls. And the falls are huge. They're tremendous. They're very large. But so was the crowd that day that went to see Niagara Falls. And when we got there, I was overwhelmed by the crowd. And, and, and I would say 90% of the crowd were Indians. They were from India or from Indian descent. I, growing up as a boy in West Texas, I'd never seen so many Indians. I thought I was in New Delhi. It was amazing. And they were all speaking different languages, and they all had red dots on their foreheads, pointing out they were Hindu. Now, as a Presbyterian pastor, I should have seen this as a great opportunity to share the gospel, to tell people about Jesus who are very far from God. But I have to be honest with you, that day I just wanted to see Niagara Falls. And, and I wasn't really thinking about sharing the gospel. I was thinking about, gosh, there's a lot of people here. It's going to take a while before I get to see the falls. And in India, their concept of personal space is much different than ours, it's much smaller. And I was constantly getting bumped by these folks, and, and it was really tight. And I noticed that there was this habit people had of, of kind of cutting in line, and then they would get a, a better place in line, and then they would wave their family members to come forward, and there would be like eight people who would get in front of me. And I'm like, I'm not making any progress in this line. What is going on? And this kept happening time and time again. And finally, another American woman noticed this was happening. And out of frustration, she yelled at the whole crowd, not any one particular person, but just the whole crowd of people from India. And she said, if you're a visitor to our country, please act like a guest and quit cutting in line. Now, as a pastor, I would never say that, but I was thinking it. I was thinking it. And I was going to give the woman a high five, but Sarah would not let me. She's like, no, don't high five that. That's embarrassing. Have you ever been frustrated by a crowd of people before? When we're in a crowd of people and we actually encounter people that we know are far from God, How do we view them? Do we judge them? Or do we love them? The Pharisees judged the tax collectors and the sinners who were coming to Jesus. And so Jesus tells them this final parable so they might understand the heart of our Heavenly Father. And he said... There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of my property that is coming to me. And he he divided his property between them. Not many days later, 
The younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. And no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise. And go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven And before you, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this son, my son was dead and he is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he's received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, look, These many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who was devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him? And he said to him, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Here ends the reading of God's word. As the prophet Isaiah tells us, the grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our Lord stands forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You know, this is a very familiar story to most of us. And well, most of us know by the title, what is it? The prodigal son, right? But the prodigal son is really not the main character of the story. No, the main character of the story is the, is the loving father. And we can read this story, and, and we can read it so quickly that sometimes we miss what Jesus is really trying to tell us. And so I'm going to read some selected verses again and, and just slow down so that we might better understand what it is Jesus wants us to hear. There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of my property that is coming to me. I got to stop there just for a second. For a Jewish son to ask his Jewish father to give him the property that is coming to him was unthinkable. No one could imagine a son being so foolish. Most scholars point out that because the son does not have 
a wife, he's most likely still a teenager. For a teenager to ask his father for his inheritance before his father is dead is unthinkable in ancient culture. New Testament scholar Kenneth Bailey points this out. In Middle Eastern culture, to ask for the inheritance while the father is still alive is to wish him dead. A traditional Middle Eastern father can only respond one way. He's expected to refuse and drive the boy out of the house with verbal, if not physical, blows. In essence, the younger son is saying, Dad, I want your stuff more than I want you. You're better off dead to me than alive, so give me my stuff. Scholars point out that in this shame, honor-shame-based culture, the only appropriate response would have been to, to beat his son or to banish him. After all, this son is clearly breaking the fifth commandment of the Ten Commandments to honor your father and mother. He's showing nothing but disrespect by asking for his father's stuff before his father's death. This son should be beaten and banished from the household. But that's not what the father does. No, in verse 12 we read, and he divided his property between them. The Greek word for property here is bios. We get the English word biology from bios. It means property. It means livelihood. It means life. In agrarian society, your livelihood was tied to the land, the property that you owned. The more land you owned, the more cattle you could raise, the more sheep you could graze, the more crops you could grow. To sell some of your land was to give up some of your livelihood. This father must certainly know what his younger son is going to do if he divides up the property. His his son's going to sell the land. And that land most likely had been in the family for generations. And so to, to sell that land would be very shameful and embarrassing within that community. It would, it would hinder and threaten his father's very livelihood. So why is it that the father grants his son request at such a great cost to his own reputation and livelihood? Why is the father so generous to his wayward son? The father gives so much to his son because he loves his father, because he loves his son so much. Love is what motivates this father to be so generous. As we know from those familiar words that we find in the Gospel of John, chapter 3, verse 16, let's all say it together. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. God gave us his son because he loves us. He's been so generous to us out of his great love for us. And this is not just a a New Testament idea. No, we find this even in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6 to 8. Moses speaks to the people of Israel, and he explains to them why God loves them. He says this, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you. God loves us because he loves us. Not because of anything we've done. We don't deserve God's love. No, he gives it as a free gift. That's grace, God's unmerited favor. He gives that to us. And he welcomes us to come to his table, the demonstration of his great love. Sadly, the Pharisees only welcomed people to their table who were like them, 
But Jesus invites everyone to to come to his table, everyone who's willing to humble themselves and recognize their need for a savior. Notice after squandering his inheritance in a distant land with reckless living, a famine comes, and this Jewish teenager is forced to humble himself and work for a Gentile, a non-Jew, feeding pigs. Now, for Jews, pigs are very dirty animals. They won't eat pork. They still don't, and, and it, they are dirty animals. So for a Jew to have to feed a pig was like the worst job you could possibly think of. And even though this teenager has humbled himself and has hired himself out to help feed these pigs, he's still hungry, so hungry that he longs to eat the pods that he's feeding the pigs. Like an alcoholic or a drug addict who has finally reached rock bottom, this youngest wayward son has reached rock bottom. And in verse 17, we read, But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will rise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. The younger son recognizes that he has broken one of the Ten Commandments by not honoring his father, as we're told to do in the Fifth Commandment of the Ten Commandments. He has sinned against God in his reckless living. He, he humbly recognizes that he's no longer worthy to be called his father's son. Of course, the great irony of this story is that none of us are worthy to be called children of God. And yet God, in his great love for us, does that. He chooses to love us. He calls us children, even though we are wayward, sinful people. His God chooses to love us because of his great love, and he adopts us as his children through our son, through his son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. The younger son really doesn't get the grace of his father until he heads home. And in verse 20, we read, And he rose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and and kissed him. Now notice that his father communicates love to his son before his son is able to utter a word. He sees him at a distance, and he he pulls up his robe. And and back then, elderly men would wear long, flowing robes, and they would walk because that was a sign of dignity. But this father is so excited to see his son who was lost that he, he pulls up his robe. You have to grab the robe from the middle and pull it up to reveal your legs, which nobody wanted to see. And he starts running to his son, and everyone in the community is like, what is he doing? And then he embraces his son and hugs him and kisses him before his son can say a word, letting him know that he loves his son because he loves his son. And then his son begins to give the speech, right? The one that he had rehearsed. He says, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And then his father won't even let him continue. He says, but the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. The father doesn't even let his son finish his speech. He just loves him so much. He just says, go get him the best robe, which would have been his robe. He goes and gets his father's robe, the best robe he has, and he puts it on his father because his, puts it on his son because his son has come home in tattered clothes. His son's poverty is so great that he no longer has even shoes for his feet. Many centuries ago, Rembrandt, the great painter, did a wonderful job of depicting this scene with a painting I want to show you. There is the younger son with a shaved head on his knees, humbly coming 
to his father like a child, which is the only way we can enter the kingdom of heaven, according to Jesus, is like a child, humbly, on our knees, in tattered clothes, with no shoes, one sandal, but not for both feet. And there is the father placing his loving hands on his son. But notice there to the right of the prodigal son and the loving father is the older judging brother who stands with arms crossed judging his younger brother. And that's not the way it actually happens in Luke 15. In Luke 15, Jesus tells us that the father orders to have the fattened calf killed for a grand celebration. In the first century, meat was rarely eaten at meals. The fattened calf would have been a, a special calf. There was only one. He said, go kill the fattened calf. You know the one. There's only one. And it had been fed special grain most of its life so that when it was killed for a celebration, some type of religious ceremony, the meat would be moist and flavorful. When the fattened calf was killed, you could feed over 200 people with it. And so he's having a big celebration at a great cost to their estate by killing the only fattened calf. At the return of his, of his lost son, the father holds a great feast and invites most of the community, over 200 people, to come and celebrate. And there's dancing, there's music. And the older brother hears this. And so we read. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command. Notice that the father doesn't argue that. This son has been obedient for the most part. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and to be glad for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Ironically, by rejecting his father's invitation to the celebration, now the older son is breaking that fifth commandment to honor your father. And he's doing it in front of 200 plus guests. He's dishonoring his father by not obeying his father. Tim Keller says this about the older brother. At the end of the story, the elder brother has an opportunity to truly delight the father by going into the feast. But his resentful refusal shows that the father's happiness had never been his goal. When the father reinstates the younger son to the diminishment of the older son's share in the estate, the elder's brother's heart is laid bare. He does everything he can to hurt and resist his father. Like the younger son at the beginning of the story, it's revealed that the older son, all he really cares about is the father's stuff. He doesn't really love the father. If he loved the father, then he would love what the father loves. He would share his father's heart for his younger brother. Because when we really love someone, we begin to love the things they love. I'm going to confess to you, I have never liked ballet. I haven't liked it since I was a kid. I don't like it today. But when my two daughters were taking ballet, I fell in love with ballet because they love ballet. And I love my daughters, so I'll love what they love. Now, now they're no longer taking ballet, so I no longer like ballet. But when they love ballet, I love ballet. When you love someone, you begin to share their love for what they care about. If we really love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, then we will love what God loves. And we can see 
from the Bible that what God loves more than anything else are people. We are the crown of his creation, created in his very image, fearfully and wonderfully made. The older brother, if he had shared the heart of his father, he would have loved his younger brother. He would have shared in the celebration that his younger brother was home. But his heart proves to be just as far from the father as the younger son's heart was at the beginning of the story. In Genesis 4 that we read just a moment ago, that Clint read just a moment ago in this service, we read the story of the first brothers where they have the first sibling rivalry. You know, Cain and Abel, and and Cain kills Abel because he's jealous of Abel. And God comes to Cain and says, where's your brother Abel? And Cain says, am I my brother's keeper? As we look at the teachings of Jesus, we can see, yes, we are our brother's keeper. Jesus tells us that the second most important commandment is to love our neighbor as ourselves. We are called to help bear the burdens of our brothers and sisters who have fallen away from God, to welcome them back gently and lovingly when they are ready to return. As Paul explains in Galatians chapter 6, we're to carry their burden, to help them come home. Unfortunately, all the older brother can think about is how much this feast is going to cost. This fattened calf is killed, and that's a part of my estate now. My father, once again, is giving to my younger, wayward brother. You know, the truth is, when we finally grasp the costly, generous nature of God's grace, God's unmerited favor towards us, then we will naturally become generous people. In the Old Testament, the people of Israel are always told to give 10% of their first fruits back to God. That was the standard of giving back then. But as we look at the first century church, we can see that after the death and resurrection of Jesus, the earliest church goes way above a tithe. In Acts chapter 4, we have the story of Barnabas, who was a Levite, raised from the tribe of Levi on the Levitical code that says all you got to do is give 10%. But after encountering the risen Christ, after being transformed by God's amazing, costly love, Barnabas takes the land that he owns and he sells it and he gives 100% of the proceeds to the church to help further the work of God's kingdom. Yes, when we recognize how costly grace is, how generous God has been to us, we can't help but be generous people above the 10% that the Old Testament requires. For Jesus tells us where our treasure is there, our heart will be also. When we give to the work of God's kingdom, our hearts follow. We give not to get something from God, but simply out of gratitude for what God has given to us. Tim Keller points out that culturally, when the younger son left his father's estate and traveled to a distant land, once the elder son knew his father wanted his son back, he should have gone to the distant land to, to bring his younger brother back. This is what Tim Keller says. This is what the elder brother in the parable should have done. This is what a true elder brother would have done. He would have said, Father, my younger brother has been a fool and now his life is in ruins. But I will go look for him and bring him home. And if the inheritance is gone, as I expect, I'll bring him back into the family at my expense. After all, isn't that what Jesus did? Jesus, who's fully God, who was in the riches and the glories of heaven, humbled himself and became a baby in a lowly manger. And then he grew up among us and taught us and healed us and ultimately humbled himself and paid the ultimate price for his 
for our sins with his death on a cross, dying as a, a common criminal on a cross. Cursed is he who's hung on a tree, the scriptures say. And then on the third day, he conquered sin and death on our behalf with his resurrection so that we might have a new life if we simply believe in him. Yes, Jesus became poor so that we might become rich in him, full with a new life, and new promises. As Jesus, at great cost to himself, left the glory and the riches of heaven to come and find us, the wayward sons and daughters. The next time we find ourselves in a large crowd or in our schools or in our place of work or in our neighborhood and we see people that we know who are very far from God, will we judge them or will we love them? Following the example of Jesus, may we prayerfully ask the Lord to use us to be, to be an instrument of his generous grace so that we can invite everyone to come and join us at the table which he has prepared. May we seek to be like that that good elder brother that Jesus was by going out to reach out to those who are in need. Am I my brother's keeper? Absolutely we are. Please join me as you pray. Gracious and loving God, we thank you that in Jesus Christ we can see that as the elder brother to all of us, he left the estate, he left heaven and, and came down to this earth and humbled himself as a baby in a manger so that he might teach us and heal us and ultimately humble himself yet again as a criminal on a cross so that our sins might be atoned for. And conquering sin and death on the third day, he rose again so that we might have a new life in him. Oh, Lord, by your spirit, help us to be the generous people of God you've called us to be. Help us to go the extra mile, to reach out to those who are in need. Help us to be your hands and feet, to love our neighbor as ourselves, to love others as you've loved us with an unconditional love sacrificial love. We pray this in the strong and precious name of your Son, who is the Christ, and all God's people said, amen. In response to God's word, let us stand and affirm what we believe using the words of the Apostles'